Exterior, Outside Worf's Funeral. I'm Jeremy Astor, son of Moog. Come on, let me in. He's my brother. We did the Rustai together and everything. I miss that guy. <laughs> no, really, he knows me. Welcome to Reef Cage, everyone. <laughs> On this here podcast, we watched every episode of the sci-fi series Star Trek The Next Generation. We engage with the show from the perspective of adult storytellers instead of those young folks back in 1989. We have now watched season one and season two, and we're deep into season three. Uh, This is episode five, The Bonding. We are excited to get discussing that here with this wonderful Cultural Bridge crew, but we have a wonderful guest uh, that I'm very excited for, Sharif Jackson. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Huh? Very exciting to see you. We'll get to you in a second talking about some of your Star Trek background, uh, but I want to say hi to everybody else. Hi, Eric Gratton. How are you? Hello, Greg. I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Uh, that's really all I got to say on the subject. <laughs> that's good. All right, good. Done and done. Jimmy G, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm a little worried about Jeremy Astor, though. I, I think he might need a hug. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps something uh, something happened in his future. We'll find out uh, as this, this fan fiction of mine continues. <laughs> Kate Yeager, how are you doing? I am so excited to talk about Patches the Cat that I can barely oh stand God. it. Yes. I love Patches. MVP. I love that damn cat. <laughs> MVP. <laughs> Uh, so Sharif, we have uh, talked about our you know background with fandom of, of Star Trek, and I wanted to find out where you first were introduced to uh, this show, this franchise, and, and and Next Generation in particular. Yeah, um, I mean, I was actually introduced with TNG. Um, the original one was a little too young to really absorb that. Like I was born in 1980 for transparency. Um, and uh, my parents weren't really into sci-fi and stuff so i didn't really get it from them to be honest i found out about tng through two two things one tv guide (laughs) which which, like i used to love uh reading tv guide like just i don't know why but i love reading it even though i watch maybe one percent of the shows on there Um, (laughs) and two TNG was on syndication almost every night. I forget what channel. Um, I was in like the New York met- metro area. At the time. I don't remember if it was um, channel uh, twenty, WTXX. No, I feel like it was like WPIX or WWOR. Oh yeah, the channel eleven. WPIX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like it was. Yes, yeah, sorry guys, I'm giving some really local. <laughs> old dated. None of these channels exist anymore. I don't think. Uh, but but um yeah so. They would show TNG, and they would also show like a Roddenberry's other show, Earth: The Final Conflict. Uh, right. Oh wow! Back to back, and I just found out about it, and I just started watching it from there. So that's kind of how I got. I was, I was like, this is a pretty cool show, you know. It was kind of unlike anything else that I had seen, really, um, you know. So uh, that kind of started the bug. But I really got hooked um, with Voyager because that was the first one I saw from beginning to end, like live, you know, and like it was launching a new network. And I was like, wow, this is a good time to really like get my stamp on this franchise. Um, So that's really where I like fell in love. And then 
after that, I like caught up with all the older stuff. And then uh, I did skip Enterprise initially, um, but I, I did end up going back to watch it when uh, I guess formerly CBS All Access uh, first uh, came out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I'm, my wife and I watch Discovery every week. Definitely big into all of them now, really. That's super cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I, I, I remember those channels too because that was my uh, love of, you know, that seven o'clock time slot. I think they used to do it too, where it was like every night you'd be able to watch yep. uh, uh, Star Trek and and uh, catch some of the one reruns if you missed it when it premiered and all that stuff. Uh, so yep. um, it was eye-opening and uh, I'm so glad you're here to talk about this one because now we get to go back in time to October 23rd, 1989. This was the fifth episode of season three, and it is Stardate 43198.7. But in our world, uh, there's continuing a whole bunch of stories that we have talked about a little bit here in past episodes. Hungary proclaimed itself a republic on this day and declared that communist rule had ended. They uh, and it was a anniversary of some of the uprisings that happened in the 50s uh, around the formation of the communist bloc and all this stuff. And so it was a really symbolic moment for Hungary just to be like, now at this time we are we're full on a republic. We renounce the whole communist regime. It's just a, uh, yet another one of these revolutions of 1989 in which democracy uh is is starting to spread across Eastern Europe. Uh, the day after this, October 23rd, after a week delay, World Series Game 3 is finally finished and played uh, in San Francisco. Uh, we'll get to the ending of that World Series next week, uh, but it did <laughs> resume uh, after all of that. Uh, and on, also a continuing story from one I think we covered in the first season uh, on October 24th, Jim Baker was sentenced to 45 years in prison for frauding his congregation for years and years and years. And uh, this is when the sentencing was finally handed down. 45 years seems like a lot, uh, and it's well-deserved for, for what he did uh, for basically taking money from people who were contributing it to his and, and, and pocketing it, essentially, along with his wife. Uh, but it was reduced to eight years uh, on appeal. So... I haven't watched The Eyes of Tammy Faye yet. Have, have y'all? No, I'm so excited to see it, though. Yeah, I'm curious. I remember all that stuff so vividly when it happened. So vividly. Like, the the mascara and the crying and the, everything about it is just so, like, I, I feel like that was the first big scandal that maybe I was like, oh, public yeah. life. Hum, hum, hum. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those that I look back on and I go, you're going to get movie stars to play these very unflattering people. <laughs> They're going to be suddenly beautiful in the movie. And so I'm going to be very curious how that plays out too. For me, it's those glasses, those glasses that Jim Baker always wore. Just, yeah. you, you can't, that style, I can't really associate with anyone else but him at this point. Uh, so that was what was happening in the world. Kate, what was happening in pop culture? Yes, pop culture. Uh, we have some repetition again. Uh, Janet Jackson is just staying at the top of the charts with Miss You Much. Nice. Uh, speaking of things that I have not watched yet, the documentary, which I, uh, um, Janet Jackson, which is coming out, should be fantastic uh, because uh, she's actually telling her own story in this one um, from what I hear. So it'll be it'll be really interesting. Uh, Look Who's Talking was still oh, number see. one at the box office. That's right. <laughs> 
And on TV, uh, contestant Diane Landry won over $100,000. I think it was $129,370 over three episodes of Wheel of Fortune. But at the time, the backdrop uh, only went to five digits. So they had to hang a cardboard one (laughs) on the edge of it to accommodate her winnings. Awesome. Vanna White, she's fan- putting <laughs> Sharpie uh, very quickly onto a piece of cardboard. And that's it in pop culture. Sharif, what did, what did you have for, for pop culture? Yeah, so I had a couple of um, big hip-hop fans, a couple, couple of albums um, that did not drop on that date, but I feel like because I'm you know probably only going to be on here once, I can do a periphery <laughs> of times because yes. yeah. they're some of my favorite albums. So first... Queen Latifah's debut album, All Hail the Queen, dropped wow. dropped dropped on November seventh. I'm from Jersey. She's from Jersey. Always been a Queen Latifah fan. Um, super excited about that. Um, third base, the Cactus album dropped on November seventh as well. So uh, and the Brooklyn Queens, exactly. Sweet, yeah. And and um, right after this, on a on a. T- October 31st on like a Halloween was a DJ Jay Jeff and Fresh Prince uh, album and this corner, which is pretty good, um, which I especially wanted to mention because there's that new reimagining of Bel Air, that Fresh Prince yeah. of Bel Air, like dramatic like version <laughs> that is supposed to be dropping soon that I'm sort of super curious about how they're going to pull it off. I was a little questioned, questionable until I found out that Will Smith is executive like producing it. So I'm like, okay. It's in good hands. So, yeah, just just want to drop some uh, some hip hop albums on on some people. And if you haven't That's heard awesome. any of oh, those, yeah. check them. What was the big song on the, on the the Fresh Prince album? Was that Parents Just Don't Understand? Was that like the, those those ones, or was that before? I think I could beat Mike Tyson. Was probably the biggest song. Uh, <laughs> great video, by the way, of uh, Fresh Prince trying to box Mike Tyson. Uh, so <laughs> Which album did Nightmare on My Street come out? Because that. First, he's, I, yeah, he's the DJ on yeah, the rap. Yeah. Yes, thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah, on on that double album, uh, which was very rare back then. Yeah, not Nightmare on My Street. That's great. <laughs> I know, right? I didn't even think about that in years. That's amazing, Kate. It's my favorite. Jimmy G, what was happening behind the scenes on this episode? Uh, well, this episode was the the blossoming of one Ronald D. Moore. He's Woo-hoo. the writer of this episode. It is uh, actually his first episode. He was dating a young lady at the time who worked on the set, and uh, he uh, got a tour of the set and was able to share his script, which they loved. Uh, in fact, Michael Piller, who was the producer of this episode, loved this the spec for this script so much that he immediately commissioned uh, Moore to write uh, the upcoming episode of uh, The Defector. And Mm. almost none of the script in this script was changed. In fact, the only major change was um, the introduction of Jeremy's mother was actually rigged by Jeremy himself, who uh, sabotaged the holodeck. Uh, that was taken out, um, and we'll find out how it was replaced. But Ronald D. Moore, he actually uh, he wrote Sins of the Father, and he became known as the Klingon guy, and he is responsible for almost every single episode, both on TNG and Deep Space Nine, that deals with the Klingons. <laughs> and he had a pretty big hand in uh, developing DS9 as well, where he became um, an executive producer for a while. 
That's a good tour. Yeah. <laughs> right? Shoot your shot on the studio tour, man. Yeah, I just happen yeah. to have this spec script in my back pocket. Here, take it out. Yeah. Uh, and then he broke up with her. <laughs> sure. Canon. Uh, Eric, tell us about the, the uh, amazing guest stars in this one. I mean, I would love to. They are mother and daughter. Uh, we, of course, know Susan Powell in this episode as Lieutenant Marla uh, Astor. Uh, she had a pretty good career, uh, you know, 20 or so credits, but all stuff we've heard of, BJ and the Bear, mm. Six Million and Quincy M.E., The Adventures of Sheriff Lobo, of course. Lobo. BJ Hooker, and this year was pretty good because she had not only Star Trek The Next Generation, but another reboot, The New Lassie, both in the oh. same. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. About two years after this, she was a... A series regular on a TV show called Dangerous Women, where she played Warden Grayson in a women's prison. <laughs> uh, then a couple more episodes here and there, and her last credit is on Ellen in 1996. Then we have something of a more storied career in the actor who played her son, young Jeremy Astor. We have Gabriel Damon Levesi. He's an American real estate broker and former actor. Wow. Ah. <laughs> involved that lead role in the 1988 film, The Land Before Time, ladies and gentlemen. Whoa. What? So right before this, he was the lead little uh, dinosaur jerk in Land Before Time. Wow. I didn't know that. Already had uh, lead roles in four or five different failed network series and a ton of guest stars. He was kind of big time for a while. He was in Newsies, Tequila Sunrise. He was uh, Kurt, uh, or I'm sorry, Mel Gibson's kid. He, he had a pretty good career. And then uh, his final uh, credit is in 2006, and he's become a successful married real estate broker. That's all I have found out on the interwebs. Good work, Gabriel Damon. That's amazing. I love the actor to real estate broker pipeline. Is still- it is huge. <laughs> <laughs> it will never end. <laughs> it was true in Shakespeare's time, and it's true today. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, let's get into the episode proper. Uh, as Jimmy said, it was written by Ronald D. Moore and directed by Winrick Colby. Great uh, opening here with the teaser. We find out that the Enterprise is uh, in a planet. It's uninhabited. There's an away team there investigating it, led by Worf and uh, a, an archaeologist uh, by the name of Lieutenant Marla Astor. Very quickly, uh, we get some information from data about the race called the Koinonians, that they were in some war that uh, ended up in mutual assured destruction. So something that was definitely on the mind of most of us in the Cold War era was what what would happen after something like that occurred? And uh, well, this is what happens. So an accident occurs. First, Troy kind of feels, oh, no, get them out of there. Get them out of there. (laughs) So so Troy's a precog. She's yeah, a peacock. I, that's what we're. Yeah, I really didn't like that. Right, because it was guys. The landmines have emotions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? I'm like that could have came up in so many different episodes. <laughs> I though see that's interesting because the way I interpret it was that she, before the communication came in, she felt their distress and uh, and and you know the explosion and everything that was happening, and then the communication comes right afterwards. 
We got that, but they they show her being concerned right. a good yeah. like f- like forty five seconds to a minute before where they're like on the surface and they cut to her for no reason and she has like her her right. Troy senses are tingling. Yeah, and and she, and she says beam out of there now. So I I had the sense that she was like something bad is going to happen if you don't it was mm. before it, but you know, right. Not, and not it, sure. and on the heels of that, she yells, "Beam them out now." And Picard just kind of strolls over to the deck. He's like, well, let me think about this. <laughs> and then he beams him out. And uh, that was my first what the Picard moment is like, dude, that's not how you react to you need to move now moment. <laughs> they get back. They are in sick bay. And Dr. Beverly Crusher says one was dead on arrival. And that's how they end this teaser moment. It's pretty interesting. What do you guys think about how this entire setup it kind of gets kicks off the story? How it starts with with just a death without really knowing what what plot is going to be going on here. I dig storytelling that starts in the middle, mm. and this one like they're already on the planet. There are like we're sort of catching up in real time, which is an interesting take. It made me feel a little off off my feet, but I kind of like that. I kind of am intrigued by things where. I, you know, we know we're going to catch up later. Makes sense. I like the makeup on uh, both Lieutenant Astor as well as Worf. Like I could see yeah. the the shrapnel and how it ripped open his 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 uniform. Yeah, I dig that too. And I dig, I liked what uh, Kate had said about the starting in the middle, but I was put off by the precog moment and <laughs> Picard not reacting. So it kind of, that became a barrier for me immediately to that opening mm. line. It's like, uh, because now I'm, I'm thinking about, well, how am I going to respond to this on the podcast? That she's a pre cop <laughs> now. That's so it's her fault. It's, it's her well, fault. It's Come her on. fault. It's the writer's fault. It's the director <laughs> who let it go. I mean, there's a lot of people to point fingers at here. Yeah. We're here to assign blame <laughs> in as many possible places as we can. Spread it around. I got a spreadsheet going. <laughs> So then uh, after the credits roll, we have a lot of reactions from various members of the crew. I actually kind of really like how they spent this time really just delving into what it means like to have, you know, a crew member like this uh, uh, pass away. Um, you know, uh, they find out that that, that the uh, Lieutenant Astor is survived by Jeremy. Um, and I really like the immediate kind of concentration on Wesley uh, here in this, where we realize, oh, this is very similar to what happened to to our poor little ensign. I love uh, you. You mentioned the great makeup uh, on on Worf. You know the the shrapnel. Uh, I love his urge to want to go to as soon as he finds out about the kid. Like I should be the one to go. And I'm like, talk about terrifying. Showing up, you know, bloodied, covered, you know, in in shrapnel. It, you know, and it's already just such a fraught situation that you feel that tension. It's a great Michael Dorn moment. As always. Yeah, agreed. I like that he steps up right away and Picard's like, no, this is my responsibility. Yeah. Then we have that brief scene with uh, with Crusher and uh, Riker up on the bridge. Uh, I really like, I mean, you know, you always think that uh, Picard is the father figure for Wesley Crusher, but Riker in many ways is like the older brother, the, the you know, the, 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 the kind uncle. And uh, you really see that bond here. I think he's the cool uncle and we all know it. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that it comes up so quickly and that they don't shy away from it. Like this is an episode about death and loss and grief. And 
like I, I want to say to anybody listening, like when I, I lost my dad a couple of years ago and a couple of years before that, I lost a, a good friend to violence. And both times as I watch any story or read any book or turn on any podcast, everybody's talking about death. Like this character dies at the beginning, this person's uh, parent dies, all this shit. And so many times it's not earned. Yeah. And this they decided here, we're going to do this about death. It's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to face it direct on. We're going to have, we've, we've been here for three seasons so far. So these are friends of yours now and we can delve into this and you can feel for them. And I, I just, I loved how they handled it as someone who usually does not like uh, the handling of death in genre mm. uh, storytelling. Yeah. I, I also felt like in this crusher moment, in this, uh, this Beverly moment. And I know that y'all have kind of talked about this on a bunch of shows, but it's one of those things where I was like, man, I'm glad she's back, you know, like, yeah. uh, <laughs> like, uh, and, and not just because she's Wesley's mom and obviously he's a an integral part of this particular plot line, but just, I don't know, like her chemistry with, uh, you know, with, uh, Dorn and, and, and like other folks in these really serious moments, just, I just love it. I absolutely love it. And, and I don't as much, you know, I just don't think that Plasky would have been, would have pulled it off. Her bedside manner is not the same as Crusher's. That's for sure. Stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tough love versus a big warm glove. You, you know? knew what you were getting into, bub. <laughs> I lost all three of my husbands. Deal with it. <laughs> uh, so I actually really like the Picard Troy scene in the turbo lift uh, as well, because mm. we get his reaction to this, which we don't see very often. Uh, and I like that he, you know, he has that line about, you know, the whole point about having families on the starship is a very questionable policy. And I just, I, I love his, his, he gets to be himself and be, um, and I think that's why he stops the turbo lift too. So he can have this kind of private moment with Troy and unload a little bit before he has to go do something that he really knows is his duty, but hates doing. The private moment in a public space. The whole I loved it too, but the whole time I was like, I can't wait to see what Lower Dex does with this. Because you know, there was somebody <laughs> waiting for that turbo lift and uh, he just totally ruined something for them. <laughs> Stopping it for three minutes. <laughs> And as far as I know, Picard's the only one who stops the turbo lift mid mid stream, right? It's like everyone else is just keeping. He's the only one who's like hold. <laughs> uh, all right, so then he gets up to the classroom and he he has this moment with Jeremy, telling him what happened, uh, and it is it is very touching. Right, he tries to show as much, uh, you know, empathy as possible for this boy, and uh, you know, had that conversation about what happened to his father. His father is also uh, deceased. And it's, he's all alone. You're not alone. No one's alone on the Enterprise. And I thought that was a really touching moment. Yeah, I thought the acting from uh, Jeremy was just great. Like his, like especially like his, like his eyes. Like his eyes just had this like, just this piercing quality where like you've lost something, but you kind of am clearly internally struggling with something, but you don't want to, you know, share it. Like I feel like he really conveyed that super well. Um, even though he was trying to be like professional, like, like, like a house or how did it happen? I understand, but you, you, you just really felt that. I, I feel like he really sold it. Um, and like for, for a child actor, like it's very phenomenal. I thought. And it's yeah. heartbreaking the way he tries to take it like a champ, right? Like he tries mm. to be so brave and tries to be like strong and, and you can see that that affects, 
uh, Picard and Troy because they can they know how much he's trying to to not be in pain. It's just a yeah. That mixture of shock and stoicism shouldn't be possible from a young actor, no. and it's, it's kind of great. And you're right, Sharif. It's all in his eyes. The pain yeah. is is evident in his eyes, and it's it's uh, you know it, you, you see he's on the verge of tears. It's almost like got this red rimmed quality uh, to it that uh, is wonderful, uh, and you feel for him. I wonder who screamed at him right before, <laughs> or just poked him in the eyes. Got right in his face. We uh, end that act and go to the next one. And this is actually one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode. You get Riker, close up of him drinking, uh, uh, you know, a very fruity drink, I will say. So he's he's definitely like me in that he enjoys a daiquiri or something that's very sweet (laughs) on the tongue. Um, And it's it's some really great cinematography. Like he's really just uh, there, and you see him dealing with with some of this. Uh, and data comes and asks him like, you know, you know, basically the conversation is like, what does it matter how well I knew someone? Like, why is that the question? And it's still to this day that it seems a custom in, in, in humans when we are dealing with grief or, you know, it's always like, oh, how well, you know, how much are you hurting right now is basically what the question is supposed to mean, but doesn't. Cause if you ask that, that's rude. So you ask this question of how well did you know the person who, who, who died? Yeah, I also love it because Data didn't come out and ask Riker about it. He he actually asked him the question. Yeah. You know, and then saw how he reacted and then went into it. I was like, Data, that's a great, yeah. great way to handle it. And I would like to make it canon that based on Riker's, uh, you know, like response, how well did you know her? We spent some time together. They totally smashed. Like that totally. happened yeah, they for sure. Smashed. Thousand percent. The price. He is bad. He and might even be the dad. That's what I'm saying. Oh, <laughs> the timeline matches up. We've been smashing since before that kid was born. 100%. That was totally what I took away, Kate, too. I was like, wow, that is incredible because Data is not going to pick up on that. But we all, as the audience member, was like, oh, yeah. yeah, I didn't know her very well. It was a one night stand. You know, it was it was felt like it was I should I should have known her more. Well, and we've talked before that- about how he knows all of the kids on board and how that's his <laughs> way of getting to all of the single moms. Like, I'm sure this is not the first time he's met Jeremy. Hey, buddy. Good to see you again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I also, I sincerely love this this scene between Data and, and Riker, yeah. too, for the reasons we were talking about, in that, like, as as a kid, and again, I think this was geared towards people who had seen the series before, but also towards teenagers when this came out as well. Like, here's your chance to see two questioning, interesting uh, men talking feelings mm-hmm. to each other and, and doing it in a straightforward, kind way that makes room for sadness and makes room for wistfulness and, and curiosity and all those things without shame. And that that kind of scene certainly was useful to me growing up in Kansas uh, in the in the late 80s, you know, so I I have remembered this kind of talk between these two guys for a while, though not being able to put it in those words until this rewatch. That's cool. Yeah. One one small thing. I don't know if anybody notices, but Riker has one hair that is sticking out. (laughs) in this and I just caught the light for me each time I was watching I was like wow man I bet the cinematographer is or you know the hair and makeup person is just like god can we, if I just gotten one 
that one strand just comb it into place. <laughs> Maybe it's the, the point, you know, we're watching this on uh, high definition televisions. You know, most of us probably wouldn't have seen that back uh, when we were watching it on, on WPIX, for example. You, you didn't have a flat screen in 1989? <laughs> you didn't have a... <laughs> I was a precog. I had, I had the idea that flat screens would happen. I just didn't know I have one physically. So then we go back to uh, Picard's ready room where we find out LaForge's report. He had gone down and uh, checked out what happened to, you know, find out why this accident occurred and they realized it was this explosive device uh, and he basically holds it up it's been disarmed i assume and and uh, they get to see like that this is what's what's happening and uh the really interesting piece of information here is that it looked like they had been dug up and shown to the away team ahead of time yeah uh, dug up and diffused they said yeah diffused so, yeah. so it was very, yeah very purposeful yeah, uh, we'll get to exactly why in a sec. Uh, but Worf is Worf is not feeling uh, very happy uh, about about his responsibility here by leading this this away team, and uh, we get this wonderful scene in the I think it's the same set that Doctor Bob Kelso killed some nanites in a couple episodes ago, mm. uh, <laughs> uh, repurposed a little bit, and in a really interesting cinematic way. I, I love the way this scene shows that mesh. And I was just thinking about how much coordination they would have to have with making sure the actor uh, hit their mark so that they could get the, the the scene throughout all of it. We get this really nice contrast between them walking back and forth and showing different ways uh, for a very complex scene of, of, of Worf struggling with, with his role in Lieutenant Astor's death. Yeah, th this is probably my favorite scene of the whole episode because there's a, so much to it. One, as, as you said, the... The cinematography of it there's a lot of different angles there's like a moving camera at points mm -hmm. like like they really do it up in that second is um that scene where like Worf kind of assumed that Picard wasn't going to Troy for these kind of mm -hmm. uh decisions and like I was like nah like he like he talks to me you know what I'm saying which I thought was dope because I always like an assertive Troy when like she's like no I'm the expert at this you know, because I always feel like when I read about, you know, how uh, her feelings about first being in the show is sort of an eye candy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And in like how she's like, nah, I'm like an expert. And third, how like at least my feeling of it was Worf was being very forceful. Like, I need to do this. Yeah. And like uh, Troy's like, nah, like this kid has agency. Like, you got to like move at his pace. You know, like he has to deal with these emotions. Like, I just thought I was like, that is that's the ship's counselor. You know what I'm saying? Like she's not making him feel ashamed. Like she's not being condescending, but at the same time, she's being super assertive about her expertise, you know, as a counselor. And this isn't like Betazoid, like feeling stuff. This is just like, this is my experience dealing with people. I, I just, I thought it was phenomenal. I love it. Love it. It's a good point. Yeah. I mean, you don't really see the, uh, in many ways, this is a Counselor Troy episode because she's controlling it. Even and we'll get to the the ending scene, but she's the one who's leading the the whole conversation uh, at the end. And so you're right. This is a really great way to highlight uh, her as well as Deanna. Um, I mean, Marina Sirtis is acting, and I like the way they don't shy away from the anger of, that he feels over the situation. I mean, yet another sort of dimension of grief and and how we. Uh, how we explore it and what an interesting character to explore grief through, to see it through Worf's eyes. It's an uncomfortable scene in some ways because of the way it's shot. 
because you feel like you're listening in on something that you shouldn't be hearing, mm. which is just something really beautiful uh, because they're being really open and honest with each other too. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. It does almost feel like a confessional, right? Like that that screen that some Catholics use when they're giving confession. It really does feel like you're uh, uh, seeing it through that eyes. That's really cool. Um, I also will point out that even though <laughs> Deanne is like, the captain does talk to me, but only in the turbo lifts. That's, <laughs> that's where we talk. <laughs> uh, so we move from that scene to Dr. Crusher and Wesley talking. Uh, and this scene is also, I mean, we're just going powerhouse scene after powerhouse scene because this one really hit me in the feels uh, a lot because you don't see the two of them talking about the loss of uh, Wesley's father and her husband really, you know, since Farpoint, really like that. That's where it's like nailed home and then they don't really they kind of gloss over it a lot. And so this one is very interesting uh to see the two of them reacting to that death and realizing that like no you never really get over it right that there's no there's no getting over this type of loss you 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 feel it forever and you feel it in different ways and it morphs and changes and uh it's it's just a really honest way and i love how uh you know they have that little exchange and then and then you can see wesley being like should i talk about it is it okay to talk about it i guess when, when else am i going to be able to talk about it and then he you know has that very kind of plaintive of like do you ever think about him and it's it's so heartbreaking do y'all know the the metaphor of the big ball and the button on the wall no it's it's my favorite metaphor for grief that that is similar to what they were just talking about and it's if you think about life as being this enclosed room you know good size but an enclosed room and there's a button on the wall that, that comes out from the wall and it's it's a button that sets off all your panic and all your grief and all of your emotions that you don't really have control over. And when you have a big loss, that room fills up to the brim with a big ball that takes up all of the room in that room. And so it's pushing against that button constantly. And then as time moves on, the ball shrinks and just loses air, but then it starts to move. So as it shrinks and moves away from that wall, the button gets unpushed but the ball starts to bounce. And so randomly it will still hit that button, but it won't stay there. And as it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, it hits the button fewer and fewer times. Mm. And it will always, always, always feel the same way when that button gets pushed. It just doesn't stay all the time. Mm. And that's, that's something that I love. And I always think about when I think about it when I, they have that conversation. And Wesley is definitely getting his his button pushed during this entire <laughs> yeah during this entire episode. Uh, so that, yeah, that's that's really powerful. Um, I also really like how it's not really a teenagery thing, although I read it that way at first. How Doctor Crusher uh, is just like maybe you should talk to Jeremy because you know he might benefit from talking to someone. And Wesley's like, nah, I don't do that. <laughs> what are you talking about? That's that seems like something I don't want to do. What and. I had a mother who would do that type of thing to me all the time. He'd be like, you should be nice and do this thing. And I'm always like, but it's, it's really hard and I don't want to do it. And then, and it just felt very, again, very natural. Even when you're dealing with uh, emotions as strong as this, that you're just like, you want to avoid it. Well, he full on rolls his eyes at her at one point. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, yeah. It was one of the few times I've ever felt uh, connected to Wesley. <laughs> Just because the the whole go talk to somebody about it, it was like, Mm-mm. yeah, <laughs> hard no from Jimmy. <laughs> no, thank you. 
Yeah, we've all been in that like position of our parents trying to get us to do something that, you know, <laughs> definitely eye wife. roll. <laughs> oh, well, I definitely would not eye roll there. I would, <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or I have to do a great job of hiding it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I held my hands up and rolled my eyes in case anyone was wondering what was just happening in that pause. <laughs> Ex- expertly done. Yeah, it happens. It works. It totally works. And then you told us about it. I mean, rookie move. <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, this little scene ends with some energy readings are happening. Things are occurring on the uh, sensors. We don't know what it is. The, the odd part about this thing, and I want to get your question, because it also does feel weird in, in multiple ways, because Troy reacts and says something like, oh, God. Um, but Jeremy's alone in his quarters watching videos on his iPad of patches of patches <laughs> captain patches coming in for a landing i like cats yeah. it, w- it was a great scene a uh, very creepy introduction of the mom oh my of, gosh terrifying like sh- really takes a turn straight out of a horror movie like uh, kind of in the background and then focusing on on her um but the pad stuff was super cute like <laughs> i i I feel like that must have been fun for them to shoot, you know, to like shoot that video for the episode. Like, yeah. that's pretty cool. That pole focus thing where oh. it's it's on him on the iPad and you see blurry. Yeah. The the actress playing, you know, uh, Lieutenant Astor. And it's you're right. It is almost a horror movie type of feel. And I think if they had done some, you know, creepy piano music, it would have felt, you know, right at home. She says she says the important thing is. I'm never going to leave you again. And the way she says it with like this like creepy smile is just absolutely like blood chilling. It is. Yeah, even without the the creepy soundtrack, it might even be more scary uh cuz it didn't get that treatment for me. I was expecting it to get more uh chilly music, but it didn't. And I'm like, "Oh, oh they're treating oh, they're treating this as way more normal than it could possibly be." Well, and Jeremy treats it like normal. I think that also kind of sells mm-hmm. it away from the horrors because he's, you know, that mom, it, he's excited, trepidatious, but excited mostly that that this 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 whatever it is 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 the image of the mom. It's the same thing he's trying to experience while looking at the video. But oh my gosh, here she is in, in, in the flesh. You always do expect the person that you've lost to walk in the room. Like it's a physical expectation. So when it happens, it's neat that his body reacts like, oh, yay, mom's home. You know, that's that's super interesting. Yeah. And like, I don't know what the time is between this and him finding out about her uh, dying. Uh, but yeah, I'm assuming he's still in like shock, right? Mm. At just hearing the news. And then having this, it's just so traumatic. My God. Yeah. Oh, I know. And and you bring that up. I think, I think the way Wesley describes it as I think this is all happening in the same day. I think this is. Oh yeah. I have a, I have a feeling that it is. Yeah. It seems like. Yeah. So he had just found out. I I feel like I skipped one part. There was a really interesting uh, thing before this where Worf does go to talk to Jeremy Astor and uh, they have an exchange. Jeremy is not really accepting of Worf at all. I find it interesting he talks about, uh, you know, we learn about death in school. Um, and, and Picard talks about that a little, and Troy talk about that a little bit in terms of, like, you're prepped for that kind of moment. But but Wesley says later on, like, of course you can't be prepared for that moment. Um, but it's it's an interesting, you know, you get that first initial instinct that Worf has to reach out and that it's going to be a long road in that scene. Right. 
that that's an earlier line too of like uh he is an orphan i'm an orphan we will understand each other and be brothers in this in this ritual and uh he even tries to pitch jeremy with it in in, in that scene be like oh we'll do this thing and it'll be great he kind of jeremy just kind of rejects that and he's like no i don't know not really into it but then after his mother actually does show up uh wharf comes back jeremy says to wharf immediately like oh no there was a mistake didn't you hear uh she's she's not injured at all and we get that great kind of reaction from from michael dorn he, he pulls out a phaser immediately yeah. which i was like oh god that's the, go right to violence uh, that's tough what's that violence that's i think that's a, a natural reaction it's it's i like that for the reason i didn't like the scene with the mom and the kid because i, I I just couldn't believe that somebody who thought they were absolutely alone in a room wouldn't be more startled when suddenly they're not alone for no logical reason. Mm. However traumatized he is by his mom's death or not. Um, and then for him, for Worf, like not only his character, but just natural instinct when you know that person is dead and now they're in front of you and all the things they've already experienced with godlike creatures, like, yeah, of course you're not real. You're a danger. Uh, and they don't turn out to be a danger, but to assume they're not would totally disregard everything they've experienced uh, in the many episodes up to this one. I, I That shot when they're hugging and his eyelid kind of goes up on her costume a little bit, even though it feel, it's, you know probably might not be the best uh, uh, shot to use. I like that they did choose to use it because it feels like, oh yeah, that's when you're, in a full embrace, you don't care whether or not you're, you know, mildly uh, uncomfortable in your eyelid. You just you're getting that embrace, and and uh, that felt real to me. Yeah, and when when uh, Worf comes in, like Amara says, <laughs> like uh, I'm here for the boy, and I thought that might have made Jeremy say, hmm, hmm. "Does my mom ever call me the boy?" But like, I get it. It's trauma. He's he's. T- I think he's in shock the whole episode. So yeah. I don't know. He's yeah. like like until right at the end. So I, so I get it. He's not really thinking rationally. But I found it interesting that um that the alien kind of dropped her cover to Worf. Like like I can't fool him. I'll just say I'm here for the boy and slowly trot to the teleporter room. <laughs> <laughs> Yoink. <laughs> I thought the other thing too is like she 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 got him on board. They were hugging, and then the first thing she says, "It's time to go back to the planet." And I'm like, yep. "You can slow play it a little bit, dude. Like, come on, like build up some rapport first, then do the pitch of you know we're gonna move you off off the ship." Those silly energy monsters, they don't know how to deal with humans. <laughs> uh, so Picard comes and uh, communicates with uh, the uh, what's happening. It can't take Jeremy. It's his responsibility. Go to the transporter room. And this scene was actually, I think, the most traumatic out of all of uh, this for me watching was was having Troy physically pull the boy away from what he believes is his mom and having his cries out. It was just it was, again, just this, this gut punch. And I don't, I don't know if that was the right thing to do, actually. As far as Counselor Troy's um, expertise here, I don't think physically picking him up and pulling him out of the room was was the right move. <laughs> Doesn't Worf do it? It's Worf reaches yeah, it up Worf. and grabs and then gives oh, Jeremy to Troy in that moment. And simultaneously the per, you know the the person that he knows is his mother uh disappears, just evaporates yeah. in front of him. I mean just it's awful. He's having a day. He is having a day. <laughs> having and that day. line, she was right there yeah. is the thing that I I hear yeah. in my head still. 
So then they go back to the quarters and the quarters have changed now into slightly, <laughs> slightly <laughs> into what they, the, the house they used to live in on earth with patches. Patches, patches is there. I wrote down patches is a goddamn angel. Cause he picks up patches and patches goes in for that snuggle. Do you know about uh, bodega cats on Twitter? Yes. I love yeah. that. Yeah. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, pictures of bodega cats and and one of their yeah. one of their videos is yeah that cat takes a scratch real good <laughs> and yeah. that cat takes a scratch real good all bodega cats are perfect every <laughs> one of them yeah i found it interesting um like obviously it was marla's choice to disappear in the transporter room so did did the alien make a choice like all right i'm in kind of a loose situation of trying to win him over here so i'm just gonna try something else like i i i just found it odd that uh i was like you're right there to bring him to the planet like i like i just found it interesting that kind of like went to plan b like i'm gonna remake the room in the video um pet patches included well she can't uh she can't transport down she doesn't have energy right so she needs their cooperation to get back to the planet like yeah. Somebody has to beam them down so oh yeah i i i guess i thought she was going to continue to make her sales pitch there you know, oh right! Like she kind of likes yeah that sudden regrouping yeah yeah that does make it interesting. I also like that it's not just an omniscient being. It's not a cue. It's not something that we have seen uh, many in many many episodes on this uh, series so far, and we'll have more going in the future. But there were limitations, and the the powering of the transporter is a big part of that. But I also really liked how they're very. I think they're pacifists too. I think because they're reacting to the war. Uh, that had occurred on here is that they're very against any type of violence. So I think actually maybe even just seeing the violence on this kid was enough to just be like, okay, no, 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 no. Let's, let's back up and, and try a new, a new take uh, here to make that happen. Um, also, it's not very clear to me. And maybe you guys can tell me is this uh, embodiment of Lieutenant Astor, is this, this entity one of the energy people, or was it just a creation of these energy beings? Mm-hmm. Because they do, she does say things like they allowed me to, to be. Yeah, I feel like it's a creation. It's a construct, right? Yeah, interesting as data. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I thought it was one of the beings, um, oh. like kind of left over, you know, after this uh, war. But but yeah, they they didn't make it c- completely clear. I yeah. love the idea though of these entities on the planet seeing that violence and then taking apart all of the landmines that they could find and leaving them in one little area. Like their intentions are so good. And I think that's, what's so interesting about this, this section that we're going into, which is, you know, we're, we're back in the house and that conversation of like, well, this isn't real. And she's like, how real does it have to be if it makes him happy? Which is just such an interesting take, you know, like for these entities, I guess, you know, because then they they raise the point, well, are you going to be able to give him friends? Yes, as many friends as he wants. Well, will you be able to give him school? You know, maybe. Uh, What about a career? career? Come on. Come on, Troy. (laughs) Get your priorities straight. And and a wife. That's right. right. Come on, 24th century, get it together. Because it's already been decided. Yeah, the, the, the logic reminds me that the um, aliens using reminds me a little bit of that um, season one episode where they kidnap all the children. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they're basically like, yeah, we'll give them a great life. Like, you know, we'll just take some payment, you know, kind of kind of like this like view of children, you know, like the 
you know, obviously like the show is like trying to convey that there's this human instinct that you can't like replicate, like no matter how high tech or rational you are. So I, I find that interesting that they have aliens try to say like, well, why do you care so much? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. This last act is all in this uh, wonderful uh, scene in the house. I really love how they call, or, or Picard does this, where he calls Wesley Crusher and Worf to their chambers and try to just talk through it. And and it's a very raw and open scene. You see uh, all the development between uh, Wesley Crusher and Picard. I like that. Uh, so yeah, let's start there because I want to do that and then, and then talk about the uh, conversation with Worf and Jeremy. But what did you guys think of this exchange that, that Troy is leading, uh, which I really enjoyed also, like I was saying, um, to have Wesley Crusher and Picard kind of really confront this thing that's been hanging over them for their entire relationship was that Picard led the mission that led to his father's death. I mean, I love the how straightforward they are when Picard is like, and eventually you got over it. And he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's terrific. Yeah. I didn't, but like, you know, I can't tell him he's going to get over it, but you know, blah, blah, blah. It's, it, was, it was nice that Picard was a little incorrect in leading it through. Yeah, or like you're mad at me because I told I was the one who told you. I'm like, no, that's not why I'm mad right. at you. No, and yeah. it's I love the scene too, but I thought Picard was leading him the whole time. Oh, but I didn't think he necessarily. Let I didn't think. He, yeah, I didn't think he knew exactly yeah. what he was gonna say, but it seemed uh, illustrative to me. Like he was, he was leading Wesley in a way that he knew would help Jeremy. Uh, it seemed very didactic and I liked it. It was like, uh, it, 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 I believed every moment. It's like, oh, he, he knows what he needs to do. He's he's being vulnerable for everybody's sake, allowing something to come at him that he may have been aware was always there. Yeah, that, that that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't pick that up at all. I, I, I picked up that Picard definitely wanted Wesley to help him talk about grieving, but I, I got a fact, I seemed like he was kind of, taken by surprise at least in my eyes at exactly how angry wesley was and for how long and when troy says like you know like just tell him like you wanted to yeah. you know to tell him i feel like I, that it was a bit of a surprise i mean it just echoes one thing that i love about um you know this episode and 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 like eric you um touched on it early on was that it like grief is not a one solution thing it's not like Oh, we do the Klingon ritual or like, oh, we just say some nice things or like prepare the classroom for it. You know, like it really talks about the stages of it and how it is like a process. And, you know, there's no end to it. You just learn how to live with, it, you know, how to live with it. You know, like I feel like it was really, really cool. I liked Wesley's anger and his fire, too. I was like, yeah, yeah. fuck yeah. What I liked about it, too, is that it informed almost all of the previous episodes that we've seen with Picard and Wesley to date, like including, you know, they, when they went on the shuttlecraft together to, you know, all the awkward interactions they had in the first season and, uh, you know, Picard really being a dick to him and Wesley not knowing how to react because he wanted really, what he really wanted to say was, you know, screw you for everything that has to do with all that anger and grief that he had about his dad. Um, and it's all compact in this moment. So I, I actually really thought that Will Wheaton's performance here uh, was, was super strong. Well, we do talk a lot about, you know, Will Wheaton as Wesley being an unbelievable character, you know, too accomplished, to this, to this, to this. 
what it what I was just thinking about is at this point we were all watching things like uh, you know the Cosby Show, the uh, Family Ties, Growing Pains, all that kind of shit that was happening in the late '80s. The kids were always wrong, always wrong, hmm. and like the parents were these people who come on and teach you the lesson at the end. And it's nice for Wesley to be right when he's mad. Yeah, for Wesley to be correct when they think that he's being stupid like it, it was neat to see and i felt like it wasn't real common like it, all the other stuff was played for laughs and the kids were always wrong so it especially in this episode it's really neat to see wesley go hard at uh the adults for for being incorrect as to what he's going through i also had the instinct and i i don't know if it would have been a better episode or not but when he says I was angry for a long time. I still am angry. And he doesn't, he, he pulls that punch a little bit. He's like, I'm not, not anymore, sir. You know? And I, and I, I'm part of me is still wondering, like, was he telling the truth? Like, cause he still seems pretty angry. Well, you know, that, that was not that far below the surface. Like it didn't take him long to, 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 to bring that up there. So he's still dealing with it. That was an acting choice. Do you think it was the right one? That's why I didn't like it. No, because he was <laughs> very believably angry, and then all of a sudden he wasn't. So he was just basing the emotion intellectually on the words that were given to him on the page, and there was no real deep understanding oh, of what that emotion was. So for me, as as an actor, I looked at it, I was like, that was a sophomoric choice that somebody should have helped you out of mm. and, let, and shown you why this doesn't ring true. Uh, for me and that's all you can ever do in those circumstances you know like maybe that's how uh will wheaton feels <laughs> like a greek character where he's up here and then the very next instant he's it's all gone and i'm not angry anymore uh and that's how that 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 scene impacted me i wasn't going to say anything until you brought that up uh just because you know i'm uh, always poo-pooing on will yeah wheaton. you sound <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I definitely got the sense that he was still angry as well. I guess my rationalization of that, which I guess is going to change after, Jimmy, after you laid that out, which is pretty cool, <laughs> was that he was saying before I was angry and it would affect, you know, me doing a job or my relationship. And now I'm managing that anger. And I guess how I kind of tried to rationalize it was that he was still angry, but he could still like, you know do his ensign duties you know um, yeah the the difference the difference between being irrationally angry and being irrationally angry and knowing it's irrational mm-hmm. you know uh, you can't stop being angry but if you know you're wrong it, it is a little different mm-hmm. <laughs> um so then that directly informs uh jeremy astor talking to Worf, right and you see him being able to maybe he felt like he had permission after he was able to see uh, uh, you know, someone who's a little bit older than him have that reaction with a captain, but he throws it right back at Worf being like, why were you the one who, who, who died? It should have been you. You were leading the mission. Why did my mom have to, to suffer? And I thought Worf to his credit, you know, and, and, and Michael Dorn really played the reaction to that very well. As always, he's <laughs> just yeah. really good. And I, what I loved, like, in that scene with Troy earlier where he first says he wants to do the ritual. And I was like, Oh, that's inappropriate. Like you can't just like try to make somebody do something. But as, as I was thinking, I was like, but I can't wait to see how it comes back around to you doing it. And I love that scene between them. And as that scene was happening, I was like, why, Oh, why have we not seen 
uh, Jeremy show up later down the road in any of these episodes as, you know, War's brother. Like, there's something really cool there. Like, we joked about it at the beginning, but there's something super cool about this little white kid who shows up somewhere. It's like, yo, I'm a Klingon. <laughs> My brother is Worf. You know who Worf is. We're brothers. He brought me up. <laughs> and uh, we don't ever get to see that. We never, ever get to see Jeremy again. He's gone. <laughs> He's gone. He got reassigned uh, off of this. That's that's my canon is that, you know. Real estate assigned. Real estate assigned. Hey, um, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick Picard season two. going to have some surprises. Amen. <laughs> Amen. That would be amazing. I would love to see him kicking some ass. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then you're right. Yeah. Worf does pitch, to, you know, doing the Roostai uh, ritual again. Uh, you know, he comes clean about, you know, having his parents also die. And I don't think that was really clear in any of their previous conversations uh, with Jeremy. He mentioned in Detroit that, you know, I'm an orphan too. Um, but they have that little bit of a moment. And then, you know, the energy being is just like, ah, okay. You're good. I love that the energy that that she leaves on her own. That to me was so bewildering. Based oh. on her argument before, was like, I will provide him with no pain, perfection, and then was they were convinced that I, like it, it it just seemed like like I know they had to end the episode. Yeah. I get it, but it seemed really weird that what happened satisfied someone that was like, I'm gonna put you in a dream world. You right, know, right. and prevent everything. We're just like, oh, okay, well, this actually is about the same. Deuces. Right. Brief, cogent argument. I, yeah, I, yeah. I loved it because to me, it felt like it maintained the idea that there was benevolence behind everything that, that these entities were trying to, and that they were somehow convinced, like, yes, you are, you are better off here with your own you know people that you know and who love and who obviously love you and and she leaves right after he says Worf says you will be a part of my family now and for all time we will be brothers and she walks over it's right after that line that she leaves so uh, I don't know maybe I just am so convinced by Michael Dorn that I'll do anything he tells me but I I just I I it felt genuine to me that she had that moment of like all right, you're safe. I think you're both right. I absolutely agree <laughs> with what Shreve said and what Kate says. I wish in the writing they would have taken two words or three words just for her to acknowledge, mm. like, you aren't like the people on that planet that right. kill themselves. Right. You're right. better. And I don't, I'm not needed. Like, some acknowledgement. <laughs> yeah. Of, and she did, like you said, when she touched her, I think I was there, but that was too subtle. Mm. You know, sometimes they want to beat us over the head, and other times they're just like, ah, they'll get it or they don't. <laughs> Jimmy, would it have been would it have been acceptable if she'd have just listened to everything and just gone, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Exit stage left. <laughs> like, fuck it, all right. <laughs> you got me. You got me. Uh, to me, it felt like um, like ghost logic in a way. Like it was kind of like we're here to do this specific thing and then, you know, like do no harm. Mm. And then they just realize, oh, wait, maybe what we're doing here actually is harm or like, you know, the 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 reason why the ghosts have been here this whole time is no longer true. And so therefore they disappear and, and go to the, the next world or whatever. Like that to me, that's what it felt like. So I I, I actually I think on, on, on Kate's side on this one was that it felt like, oh, yeah we didn't even need to see it we don't even need an acknowledgement because it's all implied we get the final stinger scene uh is jeremy and Worf going through the uh the ritual 
I like that it's a callback to Worf trying to do this on his own uh, earlier on. So we get the same kind of scene with the blue lighting and the lighting of the candle and not very much dialogue at all, but just talking about what those uh, Klingon words mean. And then Jeremy repeats them with very good pronunciation, I will say. I wrote it down. Worf says, it honors the memory of our mothers. We have bonded and our families are stronger. I love that. Like yeah, that. I like that a lot. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. I I don't as much like the lightest shot because it ends up being Worf with his eyes to the side like that. And I was constantly just looking like, man, that's a real uncomfortable look like that. I feel like the director told you to do. But it gets it across really well. You know, he's 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 moved by Jeremy uh, attempting to to. Uh, and like I said, very well at pronouncing the Klingon words. So that's it. We're over. Credits roll. What did you guys think of this episode? I will start with you, Kate. Uh, I'm going to give this episode eight and a half patches because <laughs> I want to cuddle with it. I just think it's a great episode. It deals with really, you know, weighty subject matter in a in a style that I think is not only still compelling and 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 compassionate and, and an empathetic look at that uh, now, but oh my gosh, 1989, right? I think that's just a very nice look at... Uh, at those subject matters and uh, a great cast. And I like the sci-fi-ness of it. Um, I like the idea of the benevolent entity because we've had so many non-belevident, belevident? Yeah, we'll Belevenant. I like it. We've had belevenant of them. <laughs> anyway, I'm giving this belemony blime batches. <laughs> Jimmy, what do you think? Uh, man, I'm really torn. Um, uh, I'm going to give it eight non-funny rating marks uh, because <laughs> no, that is funny. It's good for all the reasons that Kate said and what everybody else is going to say about why they like it, about the emotions and the importance of talking about emotions and confronting death. But I will never watch this episode again for the same reason I've never watched Terms of Endearment twice or The Nightingale. I don't go back to things that make me feel terrible. Uh, and I certainly don't look to it for my sci-fi. So it's great for a bunch of human reasons, but it's terrible for the sci-fi. Interesting. All right. Eric, what do you think? Eight missing Guinans. Oh. This is a big problem. I want to know what Guinan would have done with this the presence mm. of Jeremy and how useful whatever mm. her wonderful advice would have been. I think it's just more evidence that Guinan literally, when she's not in Tin Ford, is not on the Enterprise. No. <laughs> she Agreed. can clearly be wherever she wants to be. Uh, she just ain't here for these uh, episodes that she's not in. Uh, because, I mean, she'd fix it in two seconds. So eight missing guidance. Uh, I like it for all the reasons that Jimmy just skirted past. <laughs> and we'll, we'll leave it at that. Who served Riker that drink? That's what I want to know. It hadn't been Guinan. So we're there. Uh, Sharif, what are your thoughts on this episode? Um, I really loved it. Um, I can't think of a cool rating uh, thing. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll just say eight Jeremy's. <laughs> <laughs> perfect i will say that one scene that i really like kind of a silly scene but kind of reminded me of ghostbusters when the energy comes back on the ship and is like chasing o'brien yes! and he's like kind of doing this weird thing against the wall um it was straight out of like ghostbusters it was great like slimer going around um or like yeah. or or like being in the public library new york public library is great and then two security officers 
you see them in true Star Trek fashion, like jump back. Like you see them actually <laughs> kneel down and jump back, yeah. which was just hilarious. So I, I just love those kind of scenes, uh, kind of kind of hokey uh, scenes. But aside from that, yeah, I, I think his episode handled grief well. I, I did like the sci-fi aspect of it. Like, um, you know, I like kind of the supernatural, spiritual, kind of like that, like combination. Um, and I think it's something, you know, when you have a, you know, military-based show when you're, you know, um, where you're dealing with first contact and you're dealing with race. I think it's good to talk about, you know, and you're choosing to have families on the ship. I think it's good to have this um, kind of episode. So I, I thought it was done well. Nice. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it eight and a half Rikers one night stands. <laughs> it is so much what I love about this show in that it can take things that are uh, fantastical and strange and by doing so have us inform stuff about ourselves and our own emotions and how we process them and deal with them. It is, it is, I'm going to completely disagree with you, Jimmy. It is what sci-fi I think does best is trying to show us ways to, to investigate these stories without the closeness that we might feel if it was just set on earth. I uh, super, super enjoyed it. And I think the acting was super strong. We mentioned Jeremy Astor and his, uh, his real estate career. He should have gone on to a much larger acting career. If, if any of his talent uh, shown in this episode, you know, continued through on. Susan Powell, he, she did a fantastic job as well conveying. She never got to play herself. She got to play only this weird alien uh, version of herself, which I found very fascinating and hard to do. Um, and I like these types of episodes too, where they check in with each uh, of the characters and kind of see how they are dealing with the events. Uh, we didn't mention it before, but how um, even in the, in the scene with Riker and Data, how they mentioned dealing with Tasha Yar and her death. And I thought that was really strong. And I love anything that kind of shows that there's a progression going on between these characters. And you see that everybody really grew uh, from this, including uh, you know, uh, Parker, uh, Picard and Crusher and, uh, and Wesley Crusher and his relationship with his mom and Troy and his relationship with her relationship with Worf and Picard and everyone like it just always fe everybody feel like they got something out of this experience, no matter how traumatic it was uh, and is going to be different going forward. And that's to me what uh, storytelling is all about. So I loved it. It was uh, a really fun time talking to you all, especially you, Sharif. So glad that you were able to join us and uh, yeah, your insights are you. awesome. Let us know how people can find out more about what you're doing. I know Rivals of Waterdeep has got its uh, premiere happening. Actually, by the time this airs, uh, the, the premiere of the new season will already be out. But how can people find out about what you're doing? Yeah. So, yeah, check out uh, Rivals of Waterdeep. Uh, you know, we're starting season 12 uh, with uh, Latia Bryan as the DM. It's pretty nice. exciting stuff so uh, make sure to check that out at uh twitter youtube twitch all that stuff under rivals of Waterdeep. um in general all the stuff i'm doing is at sharifjackson.com s-h-a-r-e-e-f jackson.com that has links to my uh, math and science stuff to my various ttrpgs uh the dnd stuff kids on bikes meiji ascension all kind of links to that kind of stuff so make sure to just check it out there awesome well thanks again for coming on man it was really great heck yeah yeah yeah, it was fun. Yeah, man. Sweet. Thank you. And uh, because I drank all of this water, pretending to be Jeremy Astor early on, I really think my pants are wet now. <laughs> Too much. We appreciate you for voyaging with us on this episode of Re-Engage. 
Next week, we are continuing on our mission with the next episode of the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge crew on all of the social medias. Kate Yeager is Yeagerlicious. Eric Gratton is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Reengage is edited by me, Greg Tito. Logo artwork by Mojo Jojo97. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thank you so much for listening. Stand by now as Dr. Beverly Crusher is ready to re-engage.